Hi, Jazz. Hey, Lulav. What cool or queer or Jewish things have you been up to this week? Oh, no, I forgot to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) What have I done this week? Why don't you tell me what cool, (laughs) queer, or Jewish things have happened to you this week first? Okay. I did think about this. I spent a good chunk of yesterday thinking about it in the afternoon because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say. What did I even (laughs) do this week? What is time? But I do have an answer, which is that I have sort of accidentally cultivated a group of friends in my life such that I now, on Friday afternoons, have a bunch of different people who wish me Shabbat Shalom and who I do that too. And so it's like a really nice way, like marking time as I go about my life. And I have a group of friends who we have like a little pre-Shabbat get together over Zoom. And yesterday I facilitated a game, like a trivia kahoot for all of us, (laughs) where I put the trivia questions up on our shared screens and then people pressed answers from their phones. And I had made a trivia about our friend group. So it was things like, where did Alice? and go to college and oh that's cute what's tori's middle name and does ricky really like drinking tea this one's a true false so like (laughs) (laughs) it was really great and really fun and my group of friends is pretty jewish and pretty queer so it was like a nice thing cool i have one more thing to mention i guess Uh which is that i've started reading audrey lord recently Ooh, fun I don't know about fun, but... <laughs> well, I just... I'd never read any of her writing before, and I meant to read some of it earlier this year, and then life kind of caught up with me. And anyway, so I'm starting it now. And there was yesterday, like, a kind of lovely synergy, because earlier in the day, I wrote some gay poetry. And then mm. later in the day, I picked up her book, and the next essay in Sister Outsider was an essay called Poetry is Not a Luxury. And Aww. it was really beautiful and lovely, and I recommend that essay to anybody. Cool. Can you give the thesis of it, basically? Yeah, it's about how poetry is a way to capture feelings and the heart of yourself and how, like, white male society has prioritized this idea of I think therefore I am and she put it some other beautiful way I meant to have the quote here in front of me (laughs) and don't one second. Yeah, so this quote goes, The white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. The black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Poetry coins the language to express and charter this revolutionary demand, the implementation of that freedom. Cool. Yeah, that was lovely. Yeah, the thing about, like, poetry expressing true things that might not otherwise be expressed... I got sent an erotic Shakespearean sonnet recently, and the way that it was phrased, even though I had talked to this person quite a lot, the way that it was phrased revealed some new perspectives on interactions that we have that was really touching. So I know how that goes. That sounds like a lovely experience. It was great. Thank you for sharing. Your turn. Yeah. So you know how Shabbat involves sundown? Uh Uh-huh. Well, on Thursday... Which is not the day that leads into Shabbat. I had a date with my partner Tova, and we were gonna try and watch the sunset off of the same bridge that we watched the sunrise, like the first night we got together. It was gonna be all romantic and stuff, but then we just took a while, like getting back to my place. 
And so by the time we were out on the bridge, it was already sundown. (laughs) But it was nice to just like sit and recenter ourselves from like being distant to being very close Hmm. physically and just like look at the arc of our relationship and have a nice night together. So sweet. That was really fun. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't really like gone outside for anything else, (laughs) though. Chava from Hi, How Are You is hosting a Beit Midrash on Sunday that I hopefully will be able to attend. Yeah, me too. I was saying to Chava yesterday that I keep texting my friends like as if I'm going to run into them to be like, hey, are you also coming to Chava's thing? Like, (laughs) Good. So maybe we'll talk about that next week after we've actually, you know, gone to it. Yeah. Thank you for making me one of those friends because (laughs) otherwise I would have executive dysfunctioned out of doing it or even knowing that it was the thing that I could do. Yeah. So I'm real excited. Yeah. Do you want to get started? Yes, I do. (laughs) One, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week we bring you queer takes on Torah. They're Jazz. And she's Lulav. And today we're going to talk about Bamidbar. Or the wilderness. Or numbers, if you gotta speak English. Ugh. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of numbers. There are a lot of numbers. <laughs> um, I appreciate a little bit that, like, the Jewish interpreters of this were like, well, it's about their time wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And also wilderness is one of the first few words. So that's what we're going to call it. And the Christians were like, man, there sure are a lot of numbers, huh? <laughs> Good. Anyway, so we're starting a new book. Yeah. How many seconds do you want on the timer? Um, looking at my summary, I didn't check how long this was going to be. Okay. I don't know. Try 30 seconds. Okay. Three, two, one, go. God has Moshe take a census that's also a draft by tribe, and apparently all the tribes come in neat exact groups of 50. There are so <laughs> many people from the tribe of Judah. Then we count them again to group the tribes into four big groups, north, south, east, and west. The Levites are the avatar of all four locations and aren't part of the draft, so they have a separate census where they do not come in neat groups of 50, and also it turns out there, there's way fewer of them. There's a breakdown within the Levites of who belongs to which family and which has super holy or less holy roles. Moshe pl- pays God some cash and cattle because there's not quite enough Levites. And we end with yet another census and the Kohites play a fun game of don't touch the holy object or you'll die. So that was 10 seconds over. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. I was like, I guess there's not a timer ringing. Weird. Yeah. Because of different technological stuff, now that Jazz is at their mother's house, we have to do this over the phone. (laughs) And so my headphones are plugged into my phone, and I'm the only one who heard the timer. Got it. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, valiant effort. You got it under 45, which is what we were doing for most of (laughs) Viacra. 
Anyway. And uh, yeah, that's a good summary. It hits a lot of the things that I want to zoom in on. So why don't you get us started? Okay. We have this beginning. God speaks to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and says to take a census. My translation renders it as take a census of the whole Israelite community and then parenthetically of fighters by the clans of its ancestral houses. That's fair. I think that's editorializing. Well, so they note why they have it like that. Okay. Which is that the word there that they're translating as like company is eda. And that in some places that's translated as like community, but can also be translated in a whole bunch of different contexts as assembly, band, company, or faction. Mm. And they wanted to be clear that here, where it notes that they only want men over the age of 20 who are able to bear arms, that it's a little bit more precise to refer to it in slightly more military terminology. Oh, okay. So this is kol edah b'nei Yisrael? Yeah. That totally makes sense, especially because I wanted to talk about the word that we generally render as tribe, mm. but I don't like that for several reasons. Okay. So yeah, I wanted to talk about how we could translate it better. Hmm. Can you talk about why you don't like it? Yeah. So it comes via Latin and it means like a three-parted being, potentially. Basically, one of the three political or ethnic divisions of the original Roman state. So, like, there's the fact that it's a Latin word. Lots of words in English are Latin words. I know, I know. That's not the entire thing. If it were just that, I would probably be fine. But there's also the fact that tribe is usually a word used to refer to, like, groups of people who you think are inferior. Etim Online has a quote from the 1590s that says, it's a division of a barbarous race of people, usually distinguishable in some way from their congeners, united into a community under a recognized head or chief. So Yes, but it also notes that the place we get tribe from is here, one of the 12th division of the ancient Hebrews. In English. Yeah, in English. (laughs) And I think that's fair, but like the way that if there are natives of a place, they have tribes, they don't have like clans or states or whatever. Mm. You think it starts overlapping with ideas of indigeneity? With ideas of colonialism. Mm. I mean, the entire thing is that these are words that we're using in English, which have been translated through a bunch of different languages. It's like, as far as I can tell, the way that Christians, like old French Christians and English Christians were talking about the big ancestral houses of Israel. Mm. As opposed to Jews specifically. As opposed to a word that we as Jews figured out in English. Fair enough. And that they applied it to ancient Jewish peoples and then also to the peoples that they colonized. Yeah, that's just the problem that I have with it. Okay. So I was looking at the Hebrew, which took me a while because I am not nearly as good at it as you are. And I found that tribe is the word mateh, which I think is translated as staff. Like the staff that a shepherd would carry. Hmm. Sorry, where did you find that? I was looking at the places where the word tribe is used specifically in the English translation, which is line four of Bamibar one and ah, line 16. And so I just read through those entire things 
and figured out where a similar word was being used. Mm. And in both cases, it was some like conjugation of mate. So I looked up mate and it said that means staff in like one or two Google previews that I could see. Okay. And then there's another word used for the staves of Israel, which translates to rod like the rod that shepherds use. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is just like, these are the shepherding groups or like they are led by a Nisi who holds a rod to guide people. I'm not sure what's going on here. Mm. How would you want to say what traditionally in English gets translated as tribe? good question. And it's okay if you say you just want to do it as tribe. You know, I have some attachment. Not strongly. I'd be open to thinking about it more and coming to a different conclusion Uh for a different word, but I have some instinctive attachment to the word tribe, especially as it conveys this idea of groups of people who are organized more by familial connection and relationship and with some amount of inherited position, that it is explicitly not a nation state. Mm -hmm. And that it is explicitly not just a family, it's also a political unit. So thinking of it as a unit that is many different things makes sense to me. Okay. But I also do have here, you know, once we move on to talking about the groups themselves, the 12 of them, Mm -hmm. they do refer to the whole of the people as B'nai Israel, And then for each group, you have basically like B'nai God or B'nai Reuben, Mm -hmm. descendants of or the children of the person who began their group. And so you could use that type of terminology too. And that seems right to me also. Yeah. So the segue I took to get here was off of you talking about how community is used in a particularly military sense. Mm -hmm. The sense that I am getting is that mate is a word only used in military contexts Mm. and that ancestral house, Beit Av, is what's actually the group of extended families that all are wandering together. Mm. And there's some stuff later when talking about Levites that confuses that a little bit. But my impression, just from how this travels, is like, take a census of the whole fighting community of Israel You'll record them by their groups, all those who are able to bear arms. And then associated with you shall be a man from each of these staffs, each one the head of his ancestral house. Mm. That is actually fairly close to how my translation renders it, Mm -hmm. that we have this note of like, you're counting all of them. Each of them has a representative and we get their names. Like it says, from Reuben. Elizur, son of Shadur, and that sort of thing. And then when we get to line 116, my translation renders that line as, those are the elected of the assembly, the chieftains of their ancestral tribes. They are the heads of the contingents of Israel. So it does use the word tribe here, but I think your point stands. Yeah, I think what they're doing here, like the reason we're going into all this is that we are making a military gathering and... The way that we are splitting that up is by the ancestral houses that you're in. Mm. Okay. If that is not your interpretation, that's cool. (laughs) Oh, I do think we're making a military gathering. Like explicitly, I think they're like, and this one's going to be the left flank and this one's going to be the right flank. But first we have to count how many people are in each one so that we can divide it up because we get two counts, right? So first we get Mm -hmm. this bit where they do 
of the houses of Sme'on. They list all of those people and say there is 59,300 people. Yeah. And then you have the ones of Gad. And then there's, you know, 45,650 people. We go through 11 of these, <laughs> you know, with specific numbers. And the numbers do vary. Like all of the groups are not the same size. Yeah. Judah is big with 74,600. And then I think the smallest one of these 11 is Manasseh with 32,200. Oh, who's one of the brothers. Yeah. But Ephraim is the other brother and he's got 8,000 more. So. Yeah. Though it's interesting because this is all coming from the same level of descent. So Yosef has like 72.7 thousand descendants, which is only trumped by Judah. Yeah. So a question I have here is, are there 13, uh, what we've traditionally called tribes? 12. There's 12. Okay. You said 13. So, hmm. When we talk about 12... Are the Levites part of that? Yeah. Look, we have Simeon, Gad, Judah. Oh, Issachar, you skipped Reuben. Zebulon. I did. Okay, wait. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Hmm. This is a really good question. I counted them earlier, but I counted them <laughs> maybe wrong. So. Yeah, there are definitely twelve divisions here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the word that I'm going to use is divisions because... Okay. It's literally being divided, whatever. Okay. So like when we're talking about ancestral houses, is Levi included in that as one of like 13 ancestral houses? Or is Yosef's family just again being twice blessed the way that Yosef was through like the entirety of Shemot? Pitch me that one again. I don't understand this question. (laughs) Okay. You know how Yosef got like preferential treatment all the time? Yes. Is this another thing where he's getting preferential treatment? Like there are two divisions from his descendants? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I'm going to have to take a little bit of your usual cynicism here (laughs) and be like, maybe they just split later. Okay. I don't know history that tracks that. But I wonder, like, the Levites are definitely kept separate from everybody else because... They don't fight. Yeah. When there's like marching orders, everybody else is in a division and the Levites are not one of them. So it does feel a little bit like they get a special role, (laughs) but not so much the descendants of Joseph get a special role, you know? Yeah. They just have two groups instead of one. And I guess that's a special thing, but um, (laughs) they're not set apart for any special duties in the way that the Levites are. Okay, so three more questions on this part, and then that's most of the questions that I have for this entire Parsha. Okay, that's most of the Parsha, too. <laughs> because, like, once they've said this is how many people are, like, B'nai God, mm-hmm. B'nai Ephraim, then we just do a repetition again, but this time by military units. So yeah. these three groups went together, and these three groups <laughs> went together, and these were the South Troop, and this was the West Troop, and so we just get some groupings after that. yeah. So my first question is, do you think Elishama, son of Amihud, and Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, are boyfriends? What? I'm down, but There is no textual basis okay. for this whatsoever. <laughs> but also, one of the reasons that there is a division between the Ephraimites and the Manassites might be that, like, they didn't just want one of them to go to battle it was like no we have to both go because we are slightly competitive boyfriends oh my god that's very cute 
absolutely no textual basis for this. <laughs> they are pretty small groups. They could have uh, been just one group. Mm-hmm. So my second question is, I know there's Raban Gamliel. Uh-huh. But do you know of anyone else in the last 1500 years who has been named after these chieftains or their dads? Uh, this is like a really good question. There's a lot of chieftains here. <laughs> I did note there's this one over here, Nachshon from Judah. And I don't know if that's the yeah. same Nachshon who is like the first person into the sea, but maybe. And if so, it seems possible that there have been other people named Nachshon because that was like a pretty... Oh, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. And that was my third question was... Is it that Nachshon? Um, I don't know, but there seems to be no reason it couldn't be. Yeah, this is the same generation. It's the same generation. These are the people who went through the sea. They only went through it like a year ago. <laughs> and this Nachshon is a leader. And it's actually the first time we get the name Nachshon in the text. Oh. So Nachshon, like the story we know about him as stepping first into the sea, comes from later. It's a Midrashic story. Okay. The Midrash might have gotten it from here. They might have wanted somebody who was explicitly linked with Judah. Yeah, because in Yisrael's deathbed poem, right, he promised that Yehuda would be the brave one with all the accolades. Well, and then most of later Jewish history <laughs> is connected to this particular group yeah. because 10 of them are destroyed out of these ancestral houses. Oh, wait, really? Post-Torah. Okay, wild. So that was all three of my questions about this particular part. Where do you want to pick up again? Okay, so after they've all been divided into groups, mm -hmm. there's this note about the Levites were not recorded among this particular census because God had given Moshe particular instructions about how the Levites will be responsible instead for the Mishkan. Mm -hmm. And whenever the whole company is moving, the Levites are responsible for moving the Mishkan. <laughs> and nobody else is allowed in. They camp like encircled around it and everybody else is in their own troop. Unclear to me a little bit if it's like by Ancestral House or like by this North, South, East, West division. Maybe both. So it says under the banners of their Ancestral House. So I mm -hmm. think the divisions are camping and then you group it together three divisions to each side. Yeah. They also, of note, do have flags. They march under their own flags. Mm -hmm. The Midrash suggests that the flags were embroidered, and the Midrash also believed that other nations learned of the institution of colored flags from Israel, which is very funny. <laughs> They're like, we invented flags. I don't know if they had any evidence to make this assertion, but they did believe it. Amazing. Yeah, it's very cute. And then there's more instructions specific to the priests. There's like a side note about Nadab and Abihu would have been priests, but they died. So it was their younger <laughs> brothers, Eleazar and Itamar, who became priests. Mm -hmm. So pause and rewind a little bit. Okay. When we look at the sums of each of these flanks, the front flank, which is going to hit combat first, is Yehuda, Issachar, and Zebulun. And they have the largest flank by tens of thousands of dudes. And then the one on the west, which is the tiniest, is Binyamin and the two sons of Yosef. <laughs> So favoritism, love it. The Torah believes in West Coast, Best Coast. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I think we have previously shared that my perspective on the favoritism is that there's actually no reason for it. <laughs>
Midwest Midbest. <laughs> okay. Nice try. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so that was just an interesting thing with the numbers. Yeah, the other thing that is worth noting a little bit is that they do all give the numbers of how many people there are in units of 100 or at most 50. Yeah. It looks like they rounded it, you know, <laughs> which is a very fair thing to do, but it just does give the numbers like that, which is very funny later on because then we get to the Levites and God says this thing about what the Levites are going to do. They're going to work in the Mishkan and they're going to be sort of symbolically dedicated to God the way that traditionally one might have thought of the firstborns as dedicated mm -hmm. to God. And so God asks, check, check how, how many, many there are. <laughs> and within Levi, there's like these other sub houses of Gershon, Kohat, and Merari. And then... They list their children. There's like lots of little subdivisions within here. Mm -hmm. And they, a bunch of them have different roles. Like some of them are taking care of the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altars. And those hooks, those silver hooks. Uh-huh. And they note that there are 22,000 Levite males. Like this isn't a military one. So it's not over the age of 20. It's any boy over the age of one month old. Yeah. So that's minuscule. It's tiny. They are so small as a group. <laughs> Everybody else is much larger. Sorry. No, I said that wrong. They have 22,000 exactly, those people. Then they go and count all of the firstborns and they get a different specific number, not a rounded number. And that number is 22,273. Yeah. So then we have a little bit of like extra accounting here. That talks about the redemption price. Jazz, do you remember when God was like, all the firstborn are mine? Yes. I incorrectly remembered it as all the firstborn are mine, but the human firstborn you just don't do anything with. But apparently what it is, is Exodus 13, 13, the latter half of the line. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. Mm-hmm. So apparently that means like you trade a sheep for your firstborn. You pay God. What's that? You pay God for the use of your firstborn. Yeah, which I have been missing this entire time. I don't think it's come up much before. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> and so like the Levites are the payment to God in exchange for all of the firstborn, right? Yes. But there's not quite enough of them <laughs> because all of the firstborns in total are this 22,273 and the Levites only have like 22,000 flat. So they're a couple hundred short. <laughs> and so they have to pay like extra for those extra couple hundred. Yeah. Just a little bit of extra money for the priesthood. <laughs> yeah. This is very funny because... It suggests that all of those other numbers that we were like, those are probably rounded, were exact numbers. <gasps> it um, does. <gasps> Jazz. Oh, no. <laughs> why did they have exact numbers like that? That's so weird. Right. And then they give specific instructions for a separate census of this group, the Kohathites among the Levites who do extra tasks <laughs> and their extra tasks are specifically like the most sacred objects which nobody else can handle and even then they don't come in direct contact with it and they have to pick them up through things like that cursed object in harry potter which if you touch it you die 
Oh. Sorry. <sighs> that is the parallel. Thanks. We have, as always, been listening to The Shrieking Shack, and that was five episodes ago, I think. Yeah, that's why it's on my mind. So thanks for this curse, Jazz. <laughs> anyway, if you touch the cursed thing, or in this case, the blessed thing, you die. <laughs> so you have to touch it indirectly, and that way it won't kill you. But then also the wild thing is the last line of this Parsha. Can you read that for us? Uh-huh. The last line is, but let not the Kohaites go inside and witness the dismantling of the sanctuary, lest they die. So the people who are supposed to carry all of the sacred objects can't watch the sacred objects being covered. They have to trust their cousins to, like, wrap it up all correct. Yes. And then they carry it. Yes. Is there anything that we as learners can take from this remove? Well. Are you not sensing anything? Because I'm not sensing anything. I don't know. I mean, I would love to hear more interpretations and see what's been said about it. I think there's something to be said about you hold a huge amount of respect for powerful things within your midst, that you treat them really carefully. Yeah. And also figure out how to best divide up work in a safe way. I guess this is not like a holy point, but it does remind me a little bit of how people have tried to set up like signs for nuclear waste. <laughs> Nothing of honor is buried here. <laughs> yeah, like what it means to try and communicate that okay. and to try and communicate this is really dangerous. Please be careful with it. And I guess the other thing that it reminds me of is valuing different people's skills. Like they divide up the different types of tasks because they're a community and communities are interreliant on each other and they can't, <gasps> none of these groups could do it alone. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Do you have anything else? No, I think we're good. Well, before we wrap up, I actually wanted to just sort of do a side note because this Parsha is so much about the census mm -hmm. and we're in a census year. Love, how do you feel about censuses? So really paranoid. Okay. Especially because we are living in a horrifying fascist regime. Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry. Were you asking me about censuses in general or the US census? Uh, both of those things. Okay. So apparently it is illegal for anybody who isn't like immediately involved in the census to access census data. So the fact that they're explicitly recording where everybody lives and like what ethnicity they are, I have gotten okay enough with it that I filled out the census is what I will say about that. But I still do worry that explicit information about people can be used to bad ends by bad actors in power. Mm. How do I feel about censuses generally? It's nice to know how many people there are and like who needs help mm. based on like the number of people there are. What are your thoughts, Jazz? I think in general, one of the things I appreciate about this Parsha is it has this emphasis on the census and this like stand up and be counted type of thing, because I do think that like being counted is really important. And I think that censuses can be really important. Mm -hmm. And by default, my attitude towards the census is pretty positive in that I think the way sometimes we back up the things we might know as a community, but only have like anecdotal data for is to be able mm -hmm. to have like then hard data and like numbers yeah. to back stuff up. And I think, you know, there's value in being able to say, 
hey, this is a predominantly black neighborhood and it's a predominantly lower income neighborhood and see, like, we can point to the data on that one. Or like, hey, this is how many trans people there are. This is like our average rate of education. You know, like just this bill would impact X number of people probably. And that's why it's like worth putting money into. I don't remember being asked a question it's about... It's not. Okay. You were about to say there's not a trans question on the U.S. Census? Yeah. There isn't one. Yeah, you are correct. <laughs> oh, hot tip for anybody who is submitting things for the census and is non-binary. You can skip any question by pressing the submit answer button twice. Oh, that's fun. Because like, based solely on the UI, it looks like you have to enter male or female. And that is not actually true. Okay. Uh, yeah, the U.S. Census is currently set up with binary options, which is also like a whole mess legally because there are <laughs> states that recognize like there are legally yep. non-binary people also <laughs> who can't be, who couldn't even be counted, mm -hmm. even should they want to be. So I think that the census could do a lot of good and I am really in favor of having like good information. I also know of a huge number of problems with it, mm -hmm. with the US one in particular, ranging from, yeah, look at how it handles gender to do we trust the government with different information to do you know that it counts incarcerated people in the place where they're incarcerated and not the place where they came from, Yeah, which is bad because it gives more power to the people who are incarcerating them. Um, anyway, there was a survey about five years ago, mm -hmm. the U.S. Transgender Survey, which was intended to be like a census of the U.S. trans population. Oh, yeah. Really cool. I'll link to some of the the things that they found. They had thousands of participants mm -hmm. and lots of really interesting information. And there was supposed to be a second one in 2020 to be even more extensive and with a follow-up and whatever. And cool. it was really cool. I was very excited about it. <laughs> the organization organizing it kind of fell apart. Oh no. It was organized by the National Center for Transgender Equality. And in 2019, while they were definitely well in the process of organizing this 2020 survey, the organization kind of fell apart because of like the racism of its leaders and like two-thirds uh. of its staff left and they published like an open letter to leadership saying that they were doing really good work but the leadership needed to go and anyway so there probably isn't going to be one it looks like they've sort of taken down all mention of a 2020 survey okay but it did seem like a very cool project and i hope that something like it comes back eventually yeah I would love to see a follow-up in maybe, you know, 2025, <laughs> 10 years after the previous one. Yeah, that would be cool. With, you know, less racist organizers. Yeah, yeah. The staff seemed rad. Thanks for talking about that. Yeah. Are we ready to rate the Parsha? Oh, right. We're supposed to do that. Yes. So welcome to Rating God's Writing, the segment in which we <laughs> pick two scales and rate the Parsha based on it. Mm -hmm. Lulav, out of 2,000... Nope. Out of 22,000... There you go. ...holy priests, how many priests would you rate this Parsha? Some of the priests can be infants. Hmm. I would rate this Parsha 19,549. To A, indicate that there are some rounding errors in the total that you gave me. And B, I don't know, it was a militarily focused Parsha, mm. which as somebody who has grown up with a bunch of strategy games, my like gamer brain logs on and that's fun to read about. But also they're getting ready to slaughter a bunch of people and take their land. So that sucks. 
these people aren't, to be fair. These people just got out of Egypt and will be in the desert for another 38 years. (laughs) Okay. But yes, they are setting up systems to, yeah. So like there was a lot to talk about and it was interesting seeing the divisions of Mishpacha and Beit Av and Mateh, like what all those divisions meant with respect to each other. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 19,549 is I think how many boys I rated this Parsha. Okay. Jazz, out of 603,550 boys, which is all of them, how much would you rate this Parsha? Um, I would rate this Parsha. I was going to ask you how old is your son who got counted for the census, but that's too abstract. <laughs> Thank you. Have you ever shown restraint before? <laughs> um, a nice scale that I can deal with. Okay, so I would give it 36,000. I felt only fine about it. It was fine. Okay. There's good stuff in it. Um, So just to clarify, you are rating this like 5%? Oh, I meant to do it higher than that. 360,000? Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Sure. So I didn't have a strong orientation towards strategy games. Mm -hmm. I don't love war oriented things. Mm -hmm. And I also don't love like, I think that numbers and data can be really important, but that's (laughs) not how I process moral leadership. Fair. And how I think about the right way to make decisions. And so I'm down with what it's doing here, but I was frustrated with it that that's all that's happening. Yeah. So Jazz, would you like to mosey on over to the continuity corner? Yes, but before we do, I just remembered a thing that I meant to say earlier, which is that the reason they count people at one month and up Infant mortality? No, it's because they're not people until then. I mean, it's maybe related to infant mortality. (laughs) And therefore, they're just not considered people yet. That's fair. Until they make it. Which I think must be a thing that switches around later because we start getting, you know, different covenantal stuff and things around like being eight days old and whatever. But Mm -hmm. there is this note about Christianity likes to interpret things as being, you're alive from conception. And this one is like, listen, you're not even alive when you're born. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's when you start considering someone a person rather than just alive. Mm. Is that a fair distinction, do you think? Yes, yeah. So Yeah, okay, so in episode 27, we had a note about the crimson stuff. Well, do you remember the context in which we were talking about the crimson stuff? Yeah, when you're making bird bouquets, one of the things that you need is crimson stuff. The crimson, basically. Right. And I thought that meant crimson roving. Yes. So Deco went back to see if the crimson was the same as like the red stuff that Jacob sells to Esau for his birthright. Give me some of that red stuff. Right. But it's not the same thing. They're different colors. But he looked into it further and said that Rashi has a comment on this verse. Vishnei tola'at azuv and crimson and hyssop. What is the remedy that he should use that he may be healed is the translation there. And Rashi is suggesting that instead you read tola'at crimson as a worm <laughs> and read the verse kind of as let this person abandoning pride regard themselves as lowly as a worm and as hyssop so you have that combination instead wonderful and then the truly wild stuff and then Digo was like i'm gonna run with that and gave us a whole <laughs> new take on it which i was really enjoying 
he goes, so my question is, is it possible that the direction wasn't to bring crimson stuff at all, but was to bring a worm? I kind of like the idea of dipping a live worm in bird's <laughs> blood, because often a live bird sheds a worm's blood. It's like acting out the circle of life backwards to dip a worm in the bird's blood. And actually, if it is a worm, then that makes the other two items make more sense too. Cedar wood is where the bird lives. Hyssop is where the bird looks for food. According to Google, birds eat seeds left on hyssop stalks. <laughs> And worms are what the bird ate directly. This is like, this is your life ritual for the dead bird. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Dika. Chaz, can you take us to the close? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at Kosher Queers, or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivilla, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by my lovely co-host, Lulove Arnau. You must construct additional pylons. Our full transcripts, as with every episode, are done by Deco and Jazz, and definitely accessible through our episode descriptions on Buzzsprout. I'm Jazz Twersky, and you can find me at WordNerdKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Ohlone people. I'm Lila Varno, and you can find me at SpaceTruck6 on Twitter, or yell at me at PalmLiker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinaabeg. Have a, a lovely, lovely queer, queer Jewish, Jewish day. This week's gender is an insufficient number of radio buttons. This week's pronouns are not applicable.